You are listening to a podcast from The National. The world's leading scientist issued a UN report this week warning governments to act on climate change today or face a catastrophic future. The report is seen as the final warning. It says that if governments fail to limit global warming to less than 2 degrees by 2050, the world will witness significantly more droughts, flood, and extreme heat. The effects will be widespread. Rising global temperatures beyond the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold will see the displacement of hundreds of millions of people and hold disastrous consequences for billions. But what can be done and how will this affect the Middle East? This is Beyond the Headlines and I'm Nasr Wesmi and on this week's episode we'll look at the prospects of our world in the Anthropocene era and how to change the catastrophic future. Climate change seemed to have been solved in the wake of the Paris Agreement in 2015. 195 countries signed up to a legally binding document committing to take the necessary actions to keep global warming to less than 2 degrees by 2050. Rich nations pledged billions, and every signatory to the historic accord committed to reduce their global emissions. But today, the vast majority of governments committed to the Paris Agreement are falling short and the world is well on its way to be three degrees hotter than it is today. For the Middle East, that means unbearable summers, a new wave of refugees and a food crisis. Some scientists claim that the severity of dust storms and intense heat could keep children and the elderly indoors for days on end. Scientists are telling the world that the change needs to be drastic, and it needs to happen now. It's it's not necessarily a final warning. The report says we have 12 years, basically, to make the changes that we need to make. That was Tanzid Alam. He has over 13 years of experience on climate change and sustainability in the Middle East. Um, and and it's, But it does require quite a radical and big scale change in how we how we live as people in this world to, to make sure that, uh, that there's not dangerous climate change. Tanzid Alam has worked both private and public sector organizations, working on policies in the field. He is currently the managing director at Earth Matters Consultancy and is working with the World Wildlife Fund for Nature, among other entities. He joins us now from the UAE to discuss the report. Thanks for joining us, Tanzid. Thank you, Nasser. It's a pleasure to be here. It feels like we've been here before. Scientists are saying we're running out of time. But is this the final warning call? It's a good question. It does feel like we've been here before because um, I've been in this sector now for over the last 13, 14 years and scientists have been warning about the, the impacts of climate change and how how severe it could be if we blow beyond um, a two degrees goal. Now, what's new about this report is that it's um, it was commissioned as a result of the Paris Agreement to look into how much extra effort does the world need to go to to limit warming to one and a half degrees of warming, which is something that's in the text of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, And the findings show that actually aiming for that kind of a world of one and a half degrees is completely in everyone's interest because it means much less severe impacts than at two degrees of warming. Now, half a degree might not sound like very much, but it could mean quite severe impacts, a difference of quite big impacts for for people around the world. You're saying that 
you know, although half a degree doesn't seem like a big difference, but what happens according to this report if we don't achieve the 1.5 degree target? What does it mean for the region and in particular the Arabian Peninsula? Mm. Well, the report, I haven't looked at it in detail to say what it means for the region, but what we know is, for example, at one and a half degrees, um, between 70 to 90 percent of the world's coral reefs will be lost by the end of this century. Now, we already know, uh, whereas at two degrees, pretty much all of it will be lost by the year to that, by the end of the century. Now, we know in this region, for example, there it contains a lot of coral reefs, um, which already are being bleached and at the extreme kind of ranges of the temperature tolerance. So it would be in keeping with what's happening in the rest of the world, the coral reefs in this region. Um, similarly, we have a lot of people living here by the coast as well. So um, what the report says is that at one and a half degrees, um, there will be a 10 centimeter less sea level rise by the end of this century compared to two degrees which means that about um, uh, 5 to 10 million less people will be impacted around the world living on the coast, of which obviously quite a lot of people in this region live by the coast as well. So it's it's reasonable to think that actually it's, it means less severe sea level rise in this region as well. So um, there's a lot of different um, things like that. It also says, you know, there's going to be at one and a half degrees um, of warming uh, like a 100% increase in flood risk from extreme weather versus a 170% increase in flood risk at a two degree scenario. So, you know, you can see, we can weigh up the risks. It says, okay, well, I'd rather go for something that's 100% risk than 170% risk. Because if you imagine the amount of impact that flooding has, for example, you know, people not being able to go to work, the damage to the infrastructure that results in the insurance claims, and therefore the rebuilding costs and, you know, the drag on the economy as a result of increased flooding. It makes sense to go for a scenario um, that ha has less um, less risk to infrastructure from flooding. So these are all risks that the world will face as well as this region as well. When we're talking about this, and you mention it, in the region we have most of the cities on the coast. We have Abu Dhabi city, uh, an island essentially, Dubai, Kuwait City, Jeddah, Dammam, Bahrain, all of those cities will actually be affected by the rise that you just uh, explained. To what extent scientists are still finding out, and there's a lot of work to still be done in that realm that I'm sure you're aware of. But I wanted to know in particular, where, where is the UAE on this? Is the country on track or are they falling behind on commitments? Mm. Well, the UAE is actually uh, probably the leading country in the region in terms of its thinking on climate change. It has a new national climate change plan looking out to the year 2050. It has a new national energy strategy, which sets you know um, more ambitious targets to generate um, energy from renewable sources. Um, in terms of where it is compared to uh, the commitments it's already made, that's not as clear right now. Um, so that's the kind of thing that would benefit from from some kind of a monitoring report to be released to to like a state of play report on the climate and and where it is in terms of its commitments. The UAE made a commitment in advance of the Paris Agreement through its um, nationally determined contribution 
um, where it lists uh, a number of different uh, initiatives that it plans to implement. Um, and those commitments, once the Paris Agreement starts, will need to be updated as well. So um, it could, you know, obviously, you know, um, no country is perfect. So it's, there's room for improvement in any country in the world. Um, I think this year as well, there's an opportunity for countries like the UAE to start um, committing, uh, making further commitments um, to the, the UN Climate Convention, uh, COP24 as well, because some countries are looking to revise their pledges and show leadership in advance of the Paris Agreement um, starting in 2020. So um, there are always opportunities like that. But generally, I'd say I'm quite optimistic about how the UAE is is taking action on the topic. You know, it's, it's beginning to transition more to electric vehicles, um, Dubai is implementing a lot of its renewable energy targets. So is Abu Dhabi now. It's catching up. Um, there's solar rooftop programs going in there. Um, the corporates are beginning to take action on this as well. Um, so from a regional perspective, I'd say it's uh, it's further ahead than its uh, competitors. Of course. And I've spoken to uh, officials at the Ministry of Climate Change and their target of 27% renewables uh, in the next coming years seems to be well on track. Spoken to other GCC officials as well, and they seem to be quite keen on developing practices and whatnot. But more importantly, businesses have taken uh, a role in making the changes necessary to curb their emissions. You have things as simple as ordering food online. You can now at least choose the option of asking for no cutlery thus limiting the amount of plastic that eventually makes its way to our oceans, killing the reefs and other marine life. But I want to know, what are your thoughts on other countries in the region as well? It's mm. a good question. I think um, there's a lot more that could be done there. I'd say Saudi Arabia, through its Vision 2030 and um, the plans to, to scale up its renewable energy is, is, is a big one there. That's a very good, ambitious um target that it has and it's beginning to mobilize efforts around that. I think if Saudi Arabia can crack it, I think many other countries in the region could. Um, I'd say it's still lagging behind in many ways, the region. Uh, if I compare it to others in uh, other kind of emerging economies, um, you know, you look at the amount of renewable energy that China has been installing. Um, it's it's pretty vast and it's because it's seen it as a strategic industrial kind of a competitive advantage for its economy to do so. So um, I think definitely, you know, if you think about the potential of solar here with Saudi Arabia and UAE, um, between them, they could be a, a potential hub for solar power in this region, potentially exporting it to Africa or even to um, to Asia, to other countries in Asia with interconnectors between, between, um, between them. So there's a lot of potential there. I guess it just requires... Um, yeah, I guess they, they need to start in their own national jurisdictions and then start to scale up uh, the ambition uh, kind of incrementally as well. But I, I think they could get there. Um, I think the other part of it is around um, uh, energy efficiency and especially around air conditioning. Now, this is something from a climate perspective that's um, a bit of a double whammy for this region. Um, you know, where heat waves are going to increase, already we have hotter and hotter summers. And that means ultimately people rely more on cooling to keep um, their houses and their offices cold enough to, 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 to still operate in properly. But then air conditioning is the biggest consumer of energy in this country. 
or in the region. So we have to make sure we can still keep people cool without burning the, you know, <laughs> burning up the the atmosphere without with our emissions. So, um, but there's a lot of technological development that could go on there, which this region could be really well placed to to lead in. Um, and uh, in many ways, uh, it's a good adaptation strategy for the region to have good, efficient cooling systems in place because the world is going to get hotter and hotter and there will be more uh, more heat waves that we need to protect people from. If we zoom out of just the Arab region, uh, the reports, scientists, the climate change community uh, leading up to this report were basically indicating that most countries are falling behind the Paris Agreement, which you mentioned, where 195 signatories agreed to reduce climate change to below two degrees. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this? Are most countries holding on to that commitment? Are they falling behind? Is, is it just one of those things where we'll see a ramp up in commitment as new technologies emerge? Well, it's pretty clear that people, uh, even in advance of the Paris Agreement, when the pledges were assessed that it wasn't going to be enough to even um, stick to the goal. So we knew this back in 2015. Now, since then, um, some countries have kind of um, increased some of their domestic commitments. Um, some are further ahead than others. Some have fallen behind, you know, as is kind of as what happens kind of when you have that many different countries have signed up. Um, but uh, the the what this report says this IPCC report it says that we have no choice we we have to uh, we're at a state now where it, it makes much more sense when you to limit warming to one and a half degrees but the scale of change required is is much bigger than what the Paris um, pledges that have been put forward by the countries uh, mean will be reaching so we need to reduce our emissions by is 45 percent by 2030 of the 2010 levels and at least 85 percent of energy should be generated by renewable energy sources by 2050 um, and then global emissions should essentially be net zero by the middle of this century to meet this goal now there's not many countries in terms of the pledges that they put forward it's a handful one or two maybe um who are actually who can actually say that they're in line with these sorts of goals so actually it's across the board um there's needs to be significant um improvement in the level of ambition and the pledges that all countries around the world are making um the report also talks a lot about land management and making sure that you know places like the amazon rainforest are prote protected properly that new trees and forests would need to be planted or in, in different parts of the world where it makes sense to have forests. Um, so probably not this region, <laughs> but um, it makes sense. Uh, and these uh, to make sure that the trees can actually absorb carbon dioxide as well. Um, and then lifestyle changes as well are going to be really crucial to make sure we all make a difference to this, this crucial issue. Otherwise, the risks of uh, in a two degrees world or potentially a three degrees world, which is the, the, what we're heading towards, if people only implement their Paris pledges, we'd be heading towards a three degree warming uh, world, then it's pretty significant that kind of a, uh, the increased risk that we'll all face. And we're talking about the biggest polluters in the world. We're talking about the most developed countries in the world. There's a direct correlation between the two. We have China, uh, who we have seen 
have behavioral change both in the government and its people. But then you have U.S. President Donald Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement last year. It was a huge scare. Uh, it really felt to many countries that this might be, you know, just a flat-out declaration of failure. But last year at COP23, which is uh, the follow-up uh, conference to the COP21 Paris Agreement, some of the cities in the U.S. were actually doing more than the federal government's commitment. Uh, I wanted to know, are cities leading by example as smaller, more agile entities as opposed to uh, this lumbering federal institution? And can we learn from their examples? Absolutely. I, I, that's a really interesting area now, that what kind of action that cities and also businesses are taking. So in the US, um, after the, the Trump administration came into power, a campaign started called We Are Still In. I don't know if you've seen that. It's a really useful, interesting campaign. And they basically represent 169 million people um, across 50 different states. Uh, they're saying it totals, you know, $9.5 trillion of GDP there's, uh, and these are all states in the U.S. at a federal level who are still committed to climate action. So they're saying, despite the federal government committing that it wants to pull out of the Paris Agreement, which it still hasn't actually, it takes a bit of a process for it to do so. Um, these cities have already set their targets, and they're and they're looking to achieve them. There are companies in there, big ones like Walmart, who have who are who are making big reductions pledges and 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 following up on that. So it shows that this kind of more of a bottom-up action from corporates and cities um, has a really important role to play, and it makes sense. You know, we, you know, if people ask you where you live, and you know, you you're working and living in a certain city, your community is probably within that city. You work in that city. You're most familiar with that, with that kind of an environment. So, um, and cities uh, are also where more and more of the world's population are going to live in. So um, there's a lot of potential there. There's a lot of coalitions out there on cities. So, for example, the C40 Cities Network, um, which includes a number of different cities from around the world, including Dubai, who are pledged to to deal with climate change by setting targets to develop adaptation plans. There's a global covenant of mayors, which includes, you know, thousands of different cities from around the world and mayors who are coming together to actually take action on climate change and they're convening together, sharing best practices. So it seems a really dynamic space to, to operate in. Even if you think about things like electric vehicles, you know, at a citywide level, um, the, the issues to do with range of your vehicle and charging stations, uh, it should disappear with sufficient kind of infrastructure in place. You know, you can tra travel to work, you maybe. You know, for me, it's like a 15 kilometer journey every day. If I had a nice free premium parking space where I could charge my car, I wouldn't even have to worry about filling up at the petrol station and paying increasing fees for my for my fuel. It would be much more convenient for me. So um, I see this as a really interesting area, which is bringing together corporates, decision makers in government, as well as the uh, individuals in terms of creating um, lifestyle choices and changes that really happen on the ground. So um, I'm really optimistic about that side of the action that's happening. When we're looking at climate change policymaking uh, and its relationship with science, I mean, COP21 was the hallmark 
uh, it was the you know the the flagpole. That's when the Paris Agreement was signed. Uh, COP twenty two in Marrakesh was what well, many when I attended said was a hangover. They didn't they knew that they signed this, but they didn't quite understand what to do. COP twenty three in Bonn last year was trying to get to work, but looking forward, COP twenty four in uh, December in Poland. What do you expect from it, and what could we look to achieve? Mm. I think the key things are that the the rules of implementing the Paris Agreement, the guidelines that they've been working on since Marrakesh, have to be finalized and adopted, um, because that means that come twenty um, twenty, when the Paris Agreement actually starts being implemented, that it's very clear what it is, uh, what's a transparent way in which the pledges between different countries can be compared, what's expected of them in terms of. Um, their mitigation actions and adaptation. So I think those guidelines need to be completed and adopted. It would also be good to see some additional leadership coming from some of the major emitters in the world, from you know the US, from from these um, uh, from this campaign that we are still in, and cities and sub-state level. I think that's what you, we could reasonably expect is further ambition from there. Um, as well as from the European Union and um, and China, who who are responsible for like 29% of global emissions. So um, I think between those three regions, EU, China, and, um, and, and the US, it's over 50% of the world's emissions are covered there. Um, it would also be good to see further action on um, the finance side of things as well. So uh, in terms of filling the, the pot of the Green Climate Fund, which um, countries have pledged to make sure it's operational to $100 billion per year um, from the year 2020. So um, that's going to be important to make sure that further pledges are provided there, financial pledges. Um, but those are the main three things I'd say that we need to see from, from COP24. And finally, Tanzid, uh, I've known you for many years now, and I know that you practice what you preach. So to our listeners, could you just give them maybe three uh, takeaways, three things that they could do in their life that, uh, or three things that they could do differently that might be able to help uh, the environment to reduce their carbon footprint? Hmm. You know, it's such a good question. I've been working in this kind of area for so long and um, around lifestyle changes and working with people. And, you know, we're in a country where it can still be difficult to do that, but it's beginning to change. And I don't want people to get into this mindset thinking, you know, we're living in the UAE or Dubai or Abu Dhabi or wherever, where where it's we have to own two or three cars. I don't think that's necessary anymore. You know, my wife and I, we share one car and um, and and we, we managed to make ends meet through that and, and figure that out together um, using the metro, for example, and, and not actually driving a car as much as you necessarily need to uh, or as you feel you need to. That would make a big difference. I think if you're looking to make a purchase as well, start um, for a new car, start thinking about switching to an electric car. That's beginning to um, um, take effect more. There's... Um, the government's put in place some interesting incentives there for um, for people to, you know, not have the registration fee, to have low interest fee loans, free charging for the next few years. So imagine, you know, at the petrol pump, I was really surprised to see how much more expensive things are getting now. So, and, you know, you have to queue for so long to do, <laughs> to get your petrol now as well. So um, 
so things like that, I think transport and mobility is a really important area where we can think through things slightly differently. You know, sharing a lift with colleagues to car, uh, you know, carpooling more. Um, I'd say also in the home, um, a lot of it is to do with making little changes that become habits and, and talking about that. So as a family uh, at home, you know, we, we try to have three, four days a week where we're vegetarian. And that can be hard having young kids. I've got two children aged four and two. And you think, oh, my God, are they getting enough protein or not? But actually, with a bit of research, um, you can make sure that everyone has a good, healthy, balanced diet that's vegetarian. And it makes a nice change as well. And it's better for your health to to have a less kind of fatty, meaty diet um, and much better for the planet. So things like that can change. And, and actually starting a dialogue with, with your peers, your colleagues at work about why it is that you're doing that, um, socializing and having a conversation about it. So it's not just you see a scary report with scary headlines and think, oh, um, I need to, <laughs> I'm really scared now. And people have apathy. And apathy is the biggest problem we have in climate change. Um, people could read a headline that's out of the news next week. It's something else. And people soon go back to their current current styles of ways of being. So I'd say do something that's small. Um, talk about it. Congratulate yourself. Talk about the best practices that you're doing. Talk about what's hard um, and challenge people. If, um, if someone is resisting in a certain way, have an open conversation with them about what it is that they could do and why, why it is that they're resisting that idea. And I think through those kinds of socializing these concepts and with your peers, with your neighbors, it starts changing. Um, the other thing I'd say is air conditioning and lighting in your house. Um, I know utilities here are doing regular campaigns around that, Dewa and so on. They, they, they always have these summer tips on how to, you know, what's the optimum temperature to keep your house at 24 degrees. That can make a big difference. You can go and buy LED light bulbs to, switch, to replace, and they're now uh, way more cost-effective than they used to be four or five years ago. And you, you'll immediately reap the benefits on your on reduced bills. So there's a lot you can do, and there's a lot of information that's out there. And I think, you know, as Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. And I am a firm believer of that. Change comes first from within, and then you can start making the change in your work environment and, and policy and beyond. Well, there you have it. Almost two decades of experience in climate change, and those are the little changes that really could uh, make all the difference. Thank you so much, Tanzid, for joining us today. Thank you, Nasser. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Tanzid Alam for joining us on this episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite app. Also, follow the latest developments in the Middle East and the rest of the world on our website, thenational.ae. I've been your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. Thank you for listening and goodbye.